Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 153 of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this week's episode for the week ending May 10, 2019, we take a look at multiple stories. These stories include Roger Ean being extradited to the United States and what does his cooperation mean for the potential criminal prosecution of Goldman Sachs. We consider the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document, the 2019 guidance released last week. We consider the top minds in 2019 as announced by Compliance Week this past week. We look at regime change and snaring two more companies, Shell and ENI, and yet again another lawsuit involving alleged bribery and corruption from the prior regime. We consider the corporate identification doctrine in Canada and how that may be changing in light of SE and Lavalin. Uh, would you buy a new plane from Boeing? Uh, what about Boeing's charm offensive? Does it matter? We consider that. Should compliance be siloed? We look at an insider trading case that has negative implications in the United Kingdom. What is moral harassment and will it ever be prosecuted in the United States? We talk about John Rush and his excellent blog, Dipping Through Geometries. Jay continues part two of a series on monitors. We look at the what happens when the Department of Justice outsources its investigation and its excoriation it received recently last week. We consider two low-level players convicted in the NCAA bribery case. We review the five-part podcast series I did with Don Stern, Managing Director at AMI this week on the use of monitors by defense counsel. We have some upcoming events, including a webinar with myself and Michael Volkov on Friday, May 17th. Previous evening on Thursday, May 16th, we honor uh, Jim Deloach, Protivity's Jim Deloach, uh, at the Houston Greater Business and Ethics Roundtable uh, Annual Awards Center. We have discounts to Compliance Week and talk about that going forward. It's a fascinating exploration of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mr. Monitor's Jay Rosen for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Thanks, Tom. Uh, looks like you've got some great football to be watching, so c- congratulations on all that European soccer stuff. Yeah. So uh, what were some of the things that caught your eye this week, Jay? Um, we have uh, some oldies and some new ones. Uh, we've got a story that we're going to uh, have coming up a little bit about um, Boeing and them dealing with their uh, huge uh, reputational damage and customers uh, 
having issues with their planes. And uh, I think uh, at one point you're going to talk to us about uh, some of the guidance, which uh, was revealed last week in Dallas, and that's occupying a lot of uh, mind share right now. So um, first off, we've got your favorite uh, international embezzler from the 1MDB fund, uh, Jay Lowe. Why don't you give us an update on what's happening with that matter? So uh, we had some pretty big news this week, Jay, as Roger Ng, a former managing director at Goldman Sachs who worked under Tim Leisner, who has uh, pled guilty, was extradited to the U.S. from Malaysia. Uh, He is a key figure in this and certainly would go a long way towards uh, corroborating or validating uh, Tim Leisner's testimony in open court when he pled guilty and could go a long way towards uh, putting a big spanking on uh, Goldman Sachs. Reports have said that the U.S. Department of Justice, at least the line prosecutors, are pushing for a guilty plea from Goldman Sachs, although once it gets up into the AG and DAG range, who knows what will happen. Nevertheless, this is a very significant development. Uh, Will he flip on Goldman Sachs? Uh, Interestingly, the magistrate who took his not guilty plea announced in open court that he was cooperating with uh, U.S. authorities. His lawyer later denied that, so I thought that was a very interesting. Uh, also, um, uh, we had uh, uh, so we have th- those reports. We've linked to those. Uh, Jay, as you noted, uh, the 2019 guidance is still really on everyone's minds, and I think in the compliance community, a lot of chatter about that. Certainly, uh, within the commentariat, there's been a, a fair amount of chatter. Both Mike Volkoff and I had week long series on it. Uh, You were part of the Everything Compliance Gang who did a podcast on it. So we took an incredibly deep dive with uh, the full quintet uh, this this week, which went up uh, today, in fact. So uh, lots of deep dives into the guidance. It's really a lot of good stuff in there, and I would really urge every compliance practitioner to take a look at the guidance, or actually I'd I'd urge you to take a look at my blog because it's a much better summary. But uh, you can certainly take a take a look at the guidance as well. Um, our top minds on your mind this week, Jay? Yeah, we uh, had some of our good friends who were recognized by Compliance Week as as the top uh, ethics and compliance minds of 2019. Uh, folks that uh, we know very well are. Mary Shirley from Fresenius uh, Medical Care, and she is uh, co-host along with Lisa Fine of Great Women in Compliance podcast. Uh, also, a f- former colleague I know from the Bay Area, Fabiana Lacerca Allen, uh, Lynn Holland from PepsiCo, and Stephanie Davis uh, from VW, as well as uh, Matt Packman from FTI. So. Um, Tom, you're going to see a lot of these folks in D.C. in a couple weeks, correct? Right. Uh, So uh, I hope you can get behind the uh, Compliance Week firewall. If you can't, you can do a temporary pass to check it out for a couple of days. The site's been redesigned, so you should check it out for that reason. But really a great uh, group this year and uh, well uh, well deserved by uh, uh, the entire uh, group. So I hope uh, people will check that out. Jay, uh, has regime change been on your mind in sunny Southern California? Regime change? What do you mean? Well, I mean, perhaps the twins taking over the Rosen household? 
Uh, no, I don't know anything about that. I mean, <laughs> not that they have anything to take over. They they run it pretty well themselves. <laughs> oh, um, so there's no regime change there? No. Okay. But, so, uh, Jay, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I guess you were trying to tee me up for article number four, uh, Shell and ENI officials named in $1 billion Nigerian lawsuit. Yes. So this is a matter that we've been following. I think it's Genesis was back in 2011. And uh, this concerns both Royal Dutch Shell PLC and ENI SPA, an Italian firm. And there are corruption allegations over a Nigerian oil deal that uh, the West African country's government said in a London lawsuit that it believes a handful of executives, including the past CEO, were tied to more than a billion dollars in bribery payments. And it has something to do with the acquisition of a oil field uh, or uh, I guess uh, an oil plot, OPL 245, that was part of a fraudulent corrupt scheme. Um, they have leveled charges against the former head of um, Shell for doing for running and masterminding this, but there are also people along the way who had uh, given out uh, nice bribes and uh, paid millions and millions of dollars. Uh, basically, uh, after the payments in 2011, Shell and ENI were awarded the license. But the deal quickly fell apart, and J.P. Morgan told Shell that one bank had rejected its attempt to transfer the initial $1.1 billion. The lawsuit, however, is short on details regarding allegations against many of the executives it mentions, and it does have a fair share of colorful anecdotes. The Nigerian government says none of the transaction could have happened without the support or the willful, quote, blind eye, unquote, of Shell CEO Peter Vosser and former CFO Simon Henry. Uh, so this is something that's going to be uh, ongoing. And uh, Shell and ENI and other defendants in London now have 45 days to respond to the court filing, which was dated on April 8th. Do you have a Houston perspective on this one, Tom? So, Jay, what makes this lawsuit a little bit different than certainly an FCPA enforcement action is here the payment made by both Shell and E&I, and, and they both acknowledged a payment was made, but the payment was made to the Nigerian government. The allegation is that they knew, they being Shell and E&I, knew that then the money would be used to pay bribes to individual government officials. Previously, or at least uh, there's never been an FCPA enforcement action against a payment against a company who made a payment to a government because the FCPA prevents illegal payments, bribery and corruption against foreign government officials uh, as in a real person. So um, really interesting. Uh, if you talk to sort of transparency and global watch people and people who are against this global scourge of bribery and corruption, they say this is absolutely a mandatory next step that suits be brought against companies who know that their payments will be used to pay bribes, even if the payment's made to a government. That is not what the FCPA has ever said. It's not what 
any FCPA enforcement action has ever gone after. So it is a pretty big change. And uh, it would put companies in the, I think, difficult position of having to ascertain where their money would be going after it's paid to a government. Um, so perhaps that could be handled, but um, this uh, is certainly a, a new development. The regime change part, though, Jay, comes from this is because they had, uh, actually had a new election in Nigeria. And uh, the uh, this is not the who meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This is meet the new boss different from the old boss. So they won't get fooled again, hopefully. Um, but uh, part of a, a long-running series, uh, both Shell and e and I are under criminal, uh, not just criminal investigation, there's criminal trial going in uh, ongoing in Italy over this issue, or at least we'll start up again this summer. So interesting stuff. So uh, next up, we're going to go north of the border and uh, check in on what's happening with the SNC-Lavalin matter and uh, what, why this is a thorn in the side for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And this story comes to us from the FCPA blog from a couple attorneys up in Canada, Lincoln Kalor and Nathan Shaheen. So, Jay, this um, they really use the SNC-Lavalin scandal as simply as a starting point. Uh, but it talked about a, a doctrine, frankly, I was not as familiar with, called the Corporate Identification Doctrine. Uh, and in Canada, what this means at, is for a criminal offense of bribery and corruption, uh, it only goes to wrongful or intentional acts that are directly attributable or are the result of the action of a, quote, controlling, end quote, or directing, end quote, mind of a senior official. So if you contrast that with the United States, which has respondeat superior, which makes uh, corporations responsible for any employee's actions done within the course and scope of their employment, and at least in part in benefit for the corporation, uh, this is, is a pretty different animal. And the Canadian Parliament has uh, considered uh, changing the scope of this uh, so that uh, it will be more closely aligned with uh, the legal theories in the United States, and that there would be a principle of attribution of corporate liability where a corporation would be guilty if it an offense intends to either obtain or retain a, obtain or retain business for the company, obtain or retain a business vantage, advantage for the company, or otherwise benefit the corporation. Obviously, a much lower standard, but there also could be a uh, offense for the failure to prevent an economic crime. And obviously that comes from the uh, UK Bribery Act. So very interesting article. And this may portend a very large change uh, north of the border, certainly to bring Canada uh, more aligned into uh, the current thinking, uh, legal thinking in uh, Western Europe and the United States going forward. Okay, next up, uh, we're going to talk about our friends in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Boeing Corporation. And this article is from uh, the New York Times and by Natalie Kittroff and David Gellis. And uh, basically, a charm offensive is being put on by Boeing to persuade airlines, crews, and passengers that it's 737 Max uh, jet is safe and is ready to go back up into the friendly skies. Uh, 
take a look uh, in the article at John Maloney, who is one of the top lobbyists for the airlines, and he was talking to the uh, flight attendants and trying to get them to go on board and uh, vouch for Boeing. And uh, basically, Sarah Nelson, who is head of the union, said, I don't know, sitting here right now, that I can tell you there's complete confidence that everything's been fixed at Boeing. And uh, Boeing has a situation that Southwest Airlines, American Airlines, and United Airlines are three U.S. carriers who are flying the planes, and they have all been grounded. And um, we've been speaking about this matter for the past several weeks. Uh, we've talked about it on Everything Compliance. We've talked about it with Matt Kelly. And um, it seems that Boeing has really become uh, a case study in what not to do when you're uh, when you make a, a huge mistake that they have, and they really haven't gone out and owned it. They haven't said that they're to blame. Uh, they're still trying to get the airplane cleared to fly. So it's uh, it's really uh, kind of embarrassing for Boeing right now. And the, the question is, is how much shareholder value are they going to lose, and how are they going to be able to move forward? So this is to be continued. Uh, any takeaways you have? So, uh, you know, Jay, it just seems that they get worse and worse and put their foot in their mouth more and more. One of the stories that I found, if not horrifying from this article, certainly troubling was in one of the meetings where the Boeing lobbyist went, I can remember if it was the stewardesses or the pilots, he opened up with, well, I see from your body language, uh, you're a little skeptical. Well, yeah. No blank, Sherlock, because, um, of course, it's a PG podcast because your daughters might listen. So um, uh, they just uh, – this charm offensive uh, is way too little too late. And trying to – the other thing the article made clear is they're trying to bring in actually uh, credible spokesmen, but those spokesmen are not Boeing employees. They're the pilots, and they want the pilots to say – uh, we are we are willing to fly these planes, so you should be able to to ride in them. Well, uh, if you don't control the QAQC process and you get up and attest to it, uh, you've either got some big old kahunis or uh, you're setting yourself up for a big old fall if there's another catastrophic failure. And I don't know why the pilots union uh, would allow anything like that when they obviously have no input uh, into this. Um, actually, the question though I wanted to pose to you, Jay, is uh, you guys at Affiliated Monitors uh, talk about culture, and you talk about assessing culture. You talk about how, how companies can improve their culture. Um, and I guess the thing that this story has continued to drive home to me is um, you've got to take those steps long before you're in crisis mode. Uh, because the the missteps that Boeing has continued to make, and you you hit the biggest one, uh, they said they own it, but they haven't taken responsibility yet. Well, if you're not willing to take responsibility, what does that say about your overall culture? And I just uh, I hope the your message or AMI's message, I should say, about the importance of culture uh, really resonates to companies out there to to prevent all of these missteps from happening going forward. Yeah, it's a great point, Tom. Um, next up, let's go to uh, the land of football. That would be London. And uh, tell us what's happening on the UBS matter. 
So, Jay, this uh, perhaps is uh, uh, not a story that we, we would typically talk about because it is a story of insider trading and a, and a uh, trial going on in London over insider trading. But it it caught my eye for the following reason, Jay. It involves a UBS exec, or, or rather a UBS compl- former compliance officer who's accused of passing confidential information to a trader friend um, and that person engaged in insider trading. And the uh, a UBS executive told a jury that this compliance officer should not have been looking at uh, confidential information within the bank's internal database um, because she wasn't involved in the deal, so she should have had access to it. And it really disturbed me because I found that comment by UBS, the exec, to be completely antithetical to the role of a compliance officer. I'm going to leave aside for a minute whether or not they're actually she passed on the information or if there's insider trading. Um, but the fact that UBS would try to keep information and indeed control the flow of information away from the compliance function speaks of a culture that is just heading for a disaster. Uh, it really uh, almost follows directly from what we were talking about before with Boeing. But here we've got UBS saying, well, we don't think some compliance should happen and we'll make the decision as to what compliance can see. Well, if that's the attitude of senior management, um, you know, compliance will never see anything. Uh, so it really disturbed me, uh, this story, and for them to take that position uh, in the face of an employee who may have, you know, engaged in insider trading, if, if she did, that's really separate and apart from whether she should have looked at the information. As, uh, if a compliance officer can't see confidential information about trading, there was really no point in having a compliance officer. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, here's another troubling article that comes to us from uh, Jonathan Rush over at the uh, Dipping Through Geometries website. And it always seems that we have something very interesting or thought-provoking from Jonathan each week. This article is entitled, What is the Human Cost of Work? Trial of France Telecom Executives for Moral Harassment. And uh, this goes back to 2014, uh, rather 2004, and the prosecution stems for the privatization of French France Telecom, which had been state-owned monopoly. And then in 2006, it started to uh, become a public entity, and it is now known as Orange. And uh, basically, these are charges against its former chairman, uh, Didier Lombard, and two other former French telecom executives. And basically, uh, they wanted to lay people off, and they made uh, work so onerous that people were uh, either quitting or committing suicide. And there was a tragic spate of employee suicides from 2008 through 2009, and it ranged from 19 to 35 people who took their own life. So in the trial, uh, this is the largest case in which a major company and its former directors have been brought to court to justify the treatment of the staff. And um, what Jonathan talks about, he says, uh, going forward, uh, companies must really take a look 
at their own employee assistance programs, make sure that they provide suicide prevention program and other wellness access online to mental health screening and web-based tools. Also, in addition, at the conclusion of the trial, corporate compliance teams and and academics should review the trial evidence and prepare case studies to understand better how a major company could have initiated and implemented a process that apparently led to such tragic results. So, uh, um, you know, large, uh, uh, a large tale to this matter in terms of how you can, um, I guess, play with your employees' uh, psyche. I've, I've never heard anything like this. Have you read any matters from your uh, labor law cases, Tom? Well, Jay, um, given the way uh, employers, companies can treat employees in the United States, there's no reason you would have ever read anything like this because it never would be a legal issue in the United States. So unfortunately, uh, that's the the state of American law. Companies can pretty much do whatever they want to anybody. But this really, uh, if we kind of leave that aside and think about OJ, what are the psychological costs when you have to have a massive downturn? Now, the company's defense is, or Didier's defense is, well, I kept it from being much worse. Uh, Perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps drastic cuts may uh, been required, you know, they had to cut the name down from French Telecom to Orange. So, so you know, how does French te- Telecom feel about that? You know, the trademark, he's probably got very strong feelings about this. Although as a UT grad and a supporter of Burn Orange, I'm pretty proud that they changed their name to Orange. So uh, what what really does it mean to, to have to do that kind of cost cutting? I mean, you've, you've been in corporations where they've whacked. And uh, uh, when you have a large merger, uh, that's usually the, the first thing that happens the day after closing. They started getting waxed or made. And so in France, though, they're obviously taking this a step further and uh, saying there, there has to be some rational basis or there has to be something to support what you're doing. And uh, uh, if this was one suicide, you know, perhaps two, we might not be having this conversation. But to have that number of uh, suicides from that company, um, you know, in the United States, they probably was just would have all gone postal, but here they actually, you know, took their own lives. So a very sad situation. Uh, it really shows the cost of what a, a cold hearted or unfeeling corporation can be. Uh, but it could be that they simply had to engage in uh, severe cost cutting. So um, this week I had uh, part two of a series that I've started uh, looking at monitorships, who does them, how do they work, how can they help. And in part two, I take a look at what it means to work with a monitor in the wake of a settlement with a regulatory agency. And this is most common called a a post-resolution monitorship. And it's basically a situation where a government agency or a private organization agree that in the course of settling a dispute, that a matter between the two entities, the regular regulator will use a monitor to ensure any specific conditions of settlements. Um, Surprisingly, many compliance practitioners are not aware that post-resolution monitorships are used in a much wider practice area than just FCPA. 
monitor ships have been employed in antitrust scenarios to ensure compliance, not with consent decrees, but with federal communication, rather federal trade communication or federal communication approved mergers. And in the past, I think we've spoken about that. One publicly known matter that Affiliated Monitors is working on is to uh, confirm merger conditions between DirecTV and AT&T. And in that case, the monitor was charged with reviewing and assessing compliance with certain merger conditions. There was no enforcement action and no wrongdoing, but just a mutual recognition by all parties that uh, there was a need for a truly independent third party to assess compliance with acquisitions. And um, basically, uh, I go on to close to say, so far, we've really only scratched the surface of the myriad of applications that can be used for an independent, credible third party to facilitate resolution of disputes. And as we've seen at AMI over the past 15 years, the number of ways is infinite or at least limited to your imagination. So um, that's part two. And next week um, I will come back. Uh, actually, we'll have another part uh, up on the CCI website uh, early next week. So to so, conclude, on, oh, go ahead, Tom. So did I understand you, Joe, uh, excuse me, Jay, to say there'll be a part three? Yeah, this is going to be uh, basically uh, Sarah Haddon had asked me to kind of look into 101 things that anybody might want to know about monitorship. So um, this four-part series initially starts with the use of monitors. How do you work with them in a post-settlement situation? And then I'm going to kind of go around the world and look at some of the different things that we do at AMI in terms of dealing with things from um, a healthcare perspective, uh, how uh, you would use a monitor and merger and acquisitions. So really uh, looking at many different uses. And uh, if anybody wants to write in and has questions about monitors, I'd be happy to handle them in the series as well. Great. Um, next up, we've got our uh, concluding article. And this is really interesting uh, basically, a judge told the DOJ that they need to stop outsourcing their investigations. Do you want to uh, dive into the, the facts here, Tom? Yeah, Jay. So this uh, involved a criminal case called United States v. Conley. And uh, I think it was um, a uh, LIBOR case and involved Deutsche Bank. And it's uh, the government, excuse me, the judge in this case just castigated the U.S. government for outsourcing their investigation of this matter uh, to the company uh, in an internal investigation. So uh, just imagine a uh, FCPA case where a company does a thorough investigation and um, cooperates with the government, turns it over, uh, and the government uses it pretty much word for word and uh, then goes uh, criminally after people that either the company has identified or at least, um, if not pointed to, has provided facts on. Well, the Southern, the chief judge of the Southern District of New York, Colleen Mc, McMahon, um, just ripped the government for this. Now, as Sarah Croft pointed out in her article on Grand Jury Target, the, um, uh, the court upheld the conviction on other grounds. But 
what she, uh, she, the judge, pointed out was that if the government's going to outsource their investigations, then shouldn't the full panoply of criminal procedural rights be afforded to witnesses? Typically, that's not true in a uh, internal investigation. You don't have the right to, uh, you don't get a Miranda warning. You don't have the right to have counsel present. Um, and uh, other procedural protections. The um, Actually, something that I've been thinking about, writing about, and talking about for some time. What um, I found interesting, Jay, is the government responded, uh, not directly, uh, although they did say in court, we don't do that, but in a uh, presentation at the New York University uh, Center of uh, Compliance and Ethics this week, a uh, supervisor, Christopher uh, Sestaro, uh, who's a supervisor of the uh, FCPA unit, spoke at some length on how the government views internal investigations and said that the government does not direct them, that they Companies choose to do them. The government uh, may get the benefit of those uh, investigations. They may make suggestions, but they don't direct them. Um, so clearly, um, this is something that's troubling judges, uh, certainly troubled Sarah Croft, um, although I have to say she's often troubled uh, as a criminal defense lawyer about government action. So, um, but the, uh, the other article we cite to is from the same New York University program on corporate and compliance and enforcement. Uh, they're excellent compliance and enforcement blog um, that talks about this as well. And I think it's something that's going to have to be litigated in the courts, whether the uh, higher courts, the Second Circuit or the uh, U.S. Supreme Court will uh, uphold the government's position or not. It certainly is a, a gray area. And I think troubling if a uh, company makes, does an investigation, knows they're, knows they're going to turn it over to the government, has been directed by the government to do the investigation, as we just didn't discuss, but it's clearly a part of the new corporate uh, enforcement, excuse me, evaluation of corporate uh, compliance programs, the 2019 guidance we talked about earlier. So it's something that I think we're going to have to watch. The implications are really unexplored, but many um, uh, going forward. And if the DOJ continues to, to really rely on internal investigations, I could certainly see uh, something going this way, or perhaps the court will protect the government and say, no, companies are doing this voluntarily. But uh, if you're a trial lawyer, this uh, doesn't get much better than this, guys. So uh, check out the articles, and I know you'll enjoy it. So tomorrow, Tom, you're going to be concluding um, a special five-part podcast with my affiliated monitors colleague, Don Stern, who's a managing director with AMI. And for the last week, you've been speaking about how defense counsel can best use monitors. Uh, what did you and Don explore? So, Jay, it was really a fascinating series because for those who don't know Don, he is a former uh, U.S. attorney for uh, the state of Massachusetts, the entire state. Uh, then he went to um, into private practice and largely in white-collar defense. So he's got that defense counsel background before he came on board with AMI. And so he brings uh, uh, both sides of the table the views on this, and he really talked about how defense counsel, uh, as opposed to simply corporations, can use monitors 
on a proactive basis, on a reactive basis, and um, in the defense of an individual or corporation. So we looked at, we introduced the topic, we looked at specifically how we took a deep dive into the nuts and bolts of doing it. He had a fascinating couple of case studies we talked about. We touched on the healthcare industry. It's something we've talked about in other AMI series, but once again, Don talked about it from the unique perspective of the white-collar defense uh, practitioner. And then uh, in today's episode, I should say Friday, because this podcast will be released on Friday, we took a fascinating look into the use of uh, monitors in nonprofits and specifically Varsity Blues uh, scandal. And that's really on everyone's mind right now. Certainly uh, anyone who has had children go to college or will have children go to college, I think. Uh, and then, of course, for, for you ultra-rich from Southern California, I know that's a big topic at your cocktail parties, Jay. So um, uh, really a fascinating series. But the, the angle or the perspective that Don brings as both a former U.S. attorney and defense counsel, I thought really made this series unique and got me to think about using both uh, certainly a reactive monitor, but more importantly, the proactive monitor in ways that I'd really not considered before. Yeah, good stuff. So um, we've got it uh, all out on uh, LinkedIn, JD Supra, Spotify, iTunes. So whichever way you get your podcast, um, you can listen to this. Um what are you and Mike Volkov doing next week? So next week, Sean Friedland uh, over at Hanzo is going to host Mike and I for a webinar on best practices on internal investigations. Uh, certainly uh, the new guidance uh, released last week talks about internal investigations, so we're going to focus on that, but also just best practices, and it'll be a great uh, either review or uh, for the first-time listener, uh, first, first person, or rather person who is uh, – Facing an internal investigation, maybe for the first time, it would be a great way to, to get into the subject. Great. And in the show notes, we uh, link up link into the sign-up page. And Tom, uh, as we talked about earlier, Compliance Week 2019 is right around in the corner. What do you have for our listeners? So May 20 to 22nd is Compliance Week 2019. Uh, I'm going to put on a pre-conference workshop, and I'm thrilled to announce Jonathan Marks is going to join me. Uh, my topic was in, in internal investigations and root cause analysis, and Jonathan is one of the country's top root cause analysis forensic examiners. So uh, that'll be great uh, if you're interested in that topic at all. It will be on Sunday afternoon, but the conference now has uh, signed on pre uh to give the Tuesday keynote, I believe. Wei Chen will be leading off Monday with a keynote. Uh, the speakers are going to be great. Uh, we've got a discount for all of our listeners. Uh, so I hope uh, if you are interested at all, you will sign up for uh, Compliance Week and <clears throat> join us in Washington. And, Jay, if I could just take a minute, though, before we get to Compliance Week, if you're going to be in Houston on May 16th, I really urge you to check out the following. The Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable is going to honor Protivity's Jim Deloach as our 2019 Betty Steed Leadership and Business Ethics honoree. Jim is one of the most gracious gentlemen I've ever met in, in compliance and ethics. He is a, a internal auditor, CPA type, so he comes at it from a little bit different angle than, than myself or Jay. 
<clears throat> but his contributions to both internal controls, internal audit, corporate governance, and compliance and ethics is literally unparalleled. Um, we are going to honor Jim with our award with at our dinner. Uh, we've got details <clears throat> on the dinner and registration. So if you're going to be in Houston next week, I hope you'll join us. I was able to persuade Jonathan Marks to come down and give the keynote speech. So he's going to be uh, in Houston um, Thursday before he and I are in Washington on Sunday. So a great event, and I hope you'll join me in honoring uh, Jim Deloach. So with that, did, you want to take us home? Yeah. Did we give out the code um, for Compliance Week? Uh, the code's in the show notes, but uh, it's a pretty sophisticated code, so write this down. TOM300. That's T-O-M-300. All right. Well, on behalf of TOM, Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for listening in to This Week in FCPA, episode 153, for the week ending May 10th, 2019. And as Tom so eloquently said at the beginning, it's the You'll Never Walk Alone edition. Thanks so much for joining us, and have a wonderful weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week for another wrap-up of some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Also, check out today's posting on Everything Compliance, where we take a deep dive into the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's 2019 guidance. I know you'll enjoy it. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.